Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Uh, we have a few texts in this vein. So Eamon Dunphy is accusing Lineker of attention seeking. I'm sorry, but the words pot, kettle and black come to mind. Now, author John Boyne, welcome home. Thank you, Brendan. You're literally just back from three months in Australia. Yes, less than a day. This time yesterday, I was still on the plane. <laughs> Is it nice to be back here to a yellow slash orange slash yellow weather warning? And Well, oh, when, yeah. I, when I got home yesterday, you know, I, I had three months where I, I don't think I ever wore anything but shorts. And I went across to Marley Park in the snow. And it was, uh, it was, it was a bit of a, a strange homecoming, but it's quite nice. So are you now in the happy position where you can kind of go away and avoid the worst of the Irish winter? You're like one of those aging snowbirds now are you <laughs> well yeah i've been doing that for years actually i i've i've gone to australia 14 times and almost always in january uh, i just I, at that time of year i just love to go and get some sun you know yeah, yeah. and um, i haven't been since covid for obvious reasons and i was planning on going to sydney anyway for a month and then i got invited to take part in a festival in adelaide in march so i just thought i'd stick around and you know work over there rather than at home in the cold yeah. Yeah, and I've seen you've said Australia feels like your spiritual home and I don't mean to act surprised by that it's a perfectly nice place but I wouldn't have had it pegged as anyone's spiritual home or your spiritual home yeah I, I think if um, if I had a past life maybe I, I was there uh, yeah. because you know the first time I was in Australia was actually only 2007 and that's what uh, 16 years ago and I've been there 14 times in 16 years so there was something I think about it that really spoke to me when I first arrived and it just keeps just keeps bringing me back. Do you feel freer, more yourself? There? I do. I feel you know it's the it's obviously it's as far away you, as you can go without coming back again. So there's yeah. something about um, being awake when everybody else that you know really is asleep, or waking in the morning and checking your emails, and you'll get nothing else for the rest of the day because you know no one's going to contact you, and yeah, yeah, okay. and the people are so nice, and the weather, and the you know the beaches, it's great. I love it there. And come here, if I can say, a lot of people put on what they call the Sydney Stone when they go to Australia, a lot of Irish people. You certainly haven't done that at all. You look uh, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I've um, the one thing I really devoted myself to in the last sort of nine months or so um, was exercising and getting healthy. And I was at a festival in France about nine months ago and they took a picture of the authors. And it was one of those moments where I looked at the picture and I thought, oh, my God, you know, and I'm 51. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm not sort of 21. And I thought, you know, I'm at that point in my life where either I'm going to take control of myself and my health or I'm going to just sort of, I'm going to end up like Brendan Fraser in The Whale, you know. Yeah. And now, look, this it's a touchy conversation to have because mm. I know, look, everybody has their own stories and angles on this and everything. But I think we are all still entitled to our own yeah. story of our, our relationship with, with, with our body. But I saw you say that you never, you've never felt better in your life. It's, it, it's been quite a profound change for you, has it? To lose it it has, it has. And, and you are right, because people should feel comfortable with who they are and how they look. But um, good health and body health also feeds into mental health. And mental health feeds into just, you know, having a, having a happy life, really. You know, mm. so um, it, I, I do, I, I'm the lightest I've been since I was in my 20s. Um, you know, I've lost 20 kilos. And I, I just feel that has brought so much positivity into my 
my life. And I have, you know, I've talked about it before on, on radio shows. You know, I've had my own struggles with depression and things over the years and um, some mental health problems over the years. And uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I take a, an antidepressant every morning and I've been taking one for a do long you, time. Yeah. yeah, I do. And it's fine. I mean, I, the way I look at it is it's, it is simply something in my head that needs topping up, you know, every day, some sort of uh, serotonin. And does it work? It has worked for me. Yeah. It, it took a long time for my doctor to find the right one. You know, like we went through different things over different years and um, trying different tablets, trying different levels of medication until, you know, because my body is a different body than anybody else's body. Yeah. So I, I had to find what was the right one for me. So I take it in the, just take one tablet in the morning and same way I make a cup of tea in the morning and it doesn't give me a second thought. What I used to think was that I wanted to get to a place where um, where they would work so well that I wouldn't have to take them. And now what I've got to a point after many years on them is actually that's not the way to look at it. Yeah. The way to look at it is if taking this one tablet every morning is what you need medically, just take it. You don't have to kind of get to a place where you, you get off them. If yeah. you are getting to a place where you think you don't need them, it's because they're actually working. Yeah, and the temptation to stop then could, yeah, so, would be um, the wrong I'm, idea. I'm happy to just yeah. kind of take it. Now, people would say, well, you should also deal with that depression is only a symptom of something underlying and you should be dealing with that too rather than like medicating it away. You know, that's one argument too. Well, that's true, but there's two things going on there. One is depression about um, perhaps whatever issue in your life is, is upsetting you. And for that, um, therapy is obviously a good thing. I worked with a therapist um, last year for a while um, and she was brilliant she really really helped me um, but the the other thing is just the pure medical yeah. thing where your brain just isn't getting the serotonin levels that it should get so they're two completely different things what's the difference between you on your antidepressants and you not on your antidepressants well it's been such a while since I've been off them that I wouldn't know but I think um I do remember in years past when I would go off them, I, I would find myself, maybe I could find myself sort of sitting in the garden, just sort of staring, you know, and feeling, mm. what am I down about? I actually have a really good life. What am I, uh, and, and feeling, I, why can't I be happy? And, um, but I actually don't really know anymore because it's been so long and I, I don't think I ever really want yeah. to find out. So you don't have that existential kind of no. struggle anymore. No, I just sort of live Amazing. in the moment and it's yeah. fine. But, yeah. but balance. And the weight has helped as well then? It has. It's, it's been the most positive thing I've done in years, actually. Um, just changing my diet completely, changing my exercise habits completely. Um, and feeling, you know, there's something about sort of feeling that you, just for yourself, that you feel you look good. You feel confident. Yeah. You know, that you feel that, um, you know, I, I don't know if I look good, bad or indifferent, but I, I feel myself that I feel good yeah. you know and i yeah. feel i can go out and you know when i was in australia going out and you know going to clubs or whatever you don't there's a level of confidence that was missing before and so you when just, you look back on that picture now yeah. and i've had this experience myself in a more extreme way of looking at pictures from years yeah. ago and i would look sometimes and go actually at that point in my life i look I feel sorry for myself. I think I was in a bit of pain there or something that I was had had become that size. Like when you look yeah. back, is that a sadder person? Uh, it is. It, yeah. And it's an angrier person because actually the very day that that was taken, um, I was in France for a, a festival and there'd been some mess up at the airport in, in, um, in Orly. And by the time I got to the festival, I was just, I was in a mood, you know, I was just, I was ready to kill somebody. Um, just, you know, just various publicity painful things but I, I I was just in a really really bad mood and I always felt at moments like that that 
what will I do? I will, I will eat something or I will drink something and that will cheer me up. That will make me feel better. Mm. And then I, it would make me feel better for five minutes and then I would feel worse and then I would just keep eating. And uh, when I look back at that picture and I keep that picture on my phone because it's really important to me. It's, it might be the most important picture I think that's ever been taken of me in, yeah. in my life because okay. I look back at it and I, and I see a guy who is just, just looks bloody miserable, frankly, and doesn't want to be there, isn't happy, and yet is doing something wonderful that he should feel thrilled about. And, you know, having a lovely life, having a lovely time in France and, yeah, you know, talking yeah. about my books and so on. And yet I'm standing there with a face on me and thinking, how can I, when can I get out of this? When can I just kind of, you know, go back to my hotel room and, and comfort myself? Yeah. With, yeah. So you were medicating with the with food, food and drink. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Food and more look, than drink. I food. More, yeah. And look, um, completely conscious that like people have different stories out there and different issues with food and, and, and all of that kind of thing. And not everyone's story will be mm-hmm. the same as yours and all of that. But, and it's not to say, you've said at the beginning, people should accept themselves and everything. No, but it's yes, not to it's, say I just say it's your not about, story is your story. It's not about being slim. It's about feeling that whatever weight you are, that you feel happy and confident with that. Yeah. That you, you find yourself in a space that whether you're, whatever it is, that you just feel this is a good way to be. This is who I am. And I can function well. I can, you know, give to the world. I can do my work well. I can be a good, you know, whether it's a parent or a son or a friend, whatever. So whatever, you just want to be in a space where you feel good about yourself. Yeah. I wonder as well. And again, like we're into dangerous territory here now, but if you're a gay man and you're still dating and everything, mm. Like there are other guys your age would probably be, it's easier for them to let themselves go a little bit maybe. Is there a bit more pressure on on you to keep looking good when you talk about the clubs and all that kind of thing? Is there a bit more of a of a demand for a more beautiful body in the gay? Well, I suppose, I suppose there is. Um, and the, the honest answer is that for years, you know, I would avoid going to clubs because I thought, you know, there's no point. I'm not going to. Not going to stand a chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to end up sort of standing in a corner and, you know, drinking a pint and um, thinking, you know, like, let's just go and get the bus home. And, you know, in Australia, you know, I went around, um, I was in four cities in Australia and in Fiji. And, I, it, you know, I was very confident just going out places and feeling, you know, not, not necessarily expecting anything, but, but just feeling confident that I can go in and I, I feel fine. Um, but, you know, I am 51, as I said, so it's not like, you know, you're going in at 25 and thinking, you know, I look great and I can, you know, have my pick of, yeah, <laughs> of yeah, what yeah, I want. Yeah. But yeah, but still, obviously, there's a, I think there's someone for everyone. <laughs> there's yeah, there's every a category for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you did go out there. You would kind of put a mission statement on Instagram at the start of the trip. The next three months are about reading, writing and going on as many Tinder dates as I can. And then you posted an update a month later, having my fair <laughs> share of snogs along the way. So you clearly uh, you had fun out there. Yeah. I did. It was you. You know the bit on the plane where the the stewardess says the pilot has turned off the the um, seatbelt signs. So you're free to turn on your phones. Uh, when I was coming into Sydney, I literally turned on my Tinder on the phone um, coming into Sydney, and I thought, yeah. you know, I'm just going to get started. And, uh, <laughs> get started. <laughs> I just kept it moving, and I thought, you know, why not? You have to have 
I wanted to have fun. I wanted to. What's the point of going to Australia for three months and sort of sitting in the hotel room and feeling miserable? I wanted to go out and have some fun. Absolutely. And isn't it a great world we live in that you could turn on the phone on a plane, turn on yeah. the phone and start setting it up already? Um, what are Australian men like to kind of get involved? I won't say date because I don't know how serious any of this <laughs> was, but to get involved with. I'm imagining, no, and again, this could be all down to prejudices I have about Australia. Are they less complicated? Have you been to Australia? No, okay. no. Are the guys less complicated down there? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean it's, yeah. it's 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 got nothing to do with being gay or straight or anything or being men or women. I think that maybe one of the things that draws me to Australia is people because people almost all grow up on the coast, right? They live this healthier lifestyle. When you go you go out any day, you see everywhere you go, you see like teenagers and all who are all out. They're out on the streets, they're on the beaches, they're they're living this healthy life and that has fed into to themselves to being I think um, much more rounded, much more um, interesting and um, kinder sort of people. You know, yeah. they don't seem angry all the time, you know, the <laughs> way that, uh, you know, you go to a lot of countries and uh, or, or even you stay home and you feel people are always angry about something. And Yeah, but we'd be less, if we did, if it was bright here all the time, yeah. you know, good weather, we'd be less intense though. We maybe wouldn't write the books, would we? Well, you probably, you know, if you grew up in Australia, you mightn't have stayed in to write a book or read a book at all. You'd be at the beach. Well, you know, maybe that's true, but you know, I'd have, um, I, I, I'd, I'd be much more tanned, and uh, <laughs> I think I could, I think I could live with it. I think yeah. I could trade it off. <laughs> yeah. So, come here. Would you, you were married, of course, and we, we, mm-hmm. we talked about the end of that before, which was a, a, a bit of a, a kind of an omni shambles for you. Would you like to settle down again? Um, I yes and no. The sort of, if, if you'd asked me that question about two or three years ago, I would have said it was my probably the thing I wanted most in life, and now. Sure, if someone comes along, great. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just not anymore um, the obsession. I think I was always trying to replicate the past, and you know, over the last couple of years, I've had I've had quite a few um, nice relationships with people that have all it's all each one has ended in a amicable, just natural way. Stayed friends, um, no dramas, no yeah. broken hearts. So I, you know, I sort of feel happy enough in myself. I feel. Yeah, you know, if I, you know, walking out of here from RTE and I run into somebody, great. But if I, if I don't, there's plenty of great stuff going on in my life. I don't need someone else to actually make me feel whole anymore. Yeah, it's probably a good mindset to be in. Come here, you did say back in September you were taking three years off kind of writing and public appearances yeah. and, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, that didn't work out for you, no? <laughs> Here I am, less than 24 hours off the plane and back in RTE. <laughs> uh, yeah, I said that to Ryan before um, before leaving. I decided I wanted to take a big break from writing. You know, it had been 21 books in yeah. 30 years. And it's a treadmill, um, I'd say, is it? It, like it, it the, is. Yeah. And and I just felt I needed a break and I ran it past my publisher and everything. And they said, yeah, that's fine. You know, you've, you've earned the right to take the break. And then once everybody was on board with me taking the break, I was sort of getting up in the morning <laughs> thinking, well, what do I do now? And I couldn't think of yeah. anything to do. So <laughs> I got an idea for a book. So I just started writing again. I think, you know, to be honest, um, I think everybody in my life, my, my, whether it was my publisher, my agent, my family, friends, you know, they knew I might be saying it, but the reality is yeah. I was going to write. So, yeah, I have been, I've been working on another book, finished it off in, um, in Australia. So that's going to come out towards the end of the year. Great. Um, and, and I just felt, you know, life's too short. I, I just... Why abandon something that I love so much? And actually, I feel so good in myself generally when I'm writing. If I'm not working on something, I feel a bit, you know, I feel a bit yeah, low anyway. Listen, so I, I have yeah. to have something on the computer, you know, going around to to work. A three-year three break could have unmoored you completely. Really. Yeah, I, I think it was it was a, sort of a nice idea to it talk is a about. Nice it, idea, but, you yeah, know. yeah. Were you a bit, little bit burnt out at the time? Kind of I think I was. Yeah, you know, yeah. it had been a busy few years. There had been a lot of... Um, 
yeah, I had, I'd had my share of dramas, as you know, and it was, it was just, I just felt like, oh, you know, I can't take any more of this. But actually, it's the love of the writing, which is what's most important, not any of that nonsense yeah. that goes along with it. Once you actually love sitting down writing a book, and even at the festivals I was doing in Australia, you know, when people come up to you and say kind things about your books, you feel, yeah, yeah you know, this is what it's about. This is, this is what I do. This is what I'm good at. Why on earth would I abandon it? So. And come here, you're back in the fray as well uh, for a fellow who doesn't like drama. Like You wrote a very thought-provoking piece for The Telegraph uh, r- yeah. very recently about the use of the word queer and queer to describe you in particular. Say, what, what was your point? Well, it was something, something that I had been seeing a lot in recent years where this word queer was coming back into the vocabulary and people were using it. And when I was growing up as a teenager and in my 20s, you know, it was it was an insult. It was the kind of word that was thrown at you um, with sort of violence, with hatred. And what I felt was I had seen this letter in The Guardian, particularly where a man, a 66 year old man had, had asked people to stop using this word that a lot of young people um, are using it um, to describe themselves and not even young people, people in their 30s or 40s, uh, which I suppose is youngish, but you know what I mean, um, were using it to describe themselves. And sort of, I, I felt, and I could be wrong, but my feeling on it was that it was a very performative thing, that it was sort of saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gender fluid, I'm into anything. But the majority of people I felt who were calling themselves this were not, actually. You know, I was seeing so many heterosexual people who had always been in heterosexual relationships, who were in heterosexual relationships, and had never any intentions of not being in a heterosexual relationship, co-opting this word from the past and saying that actually we have... um, What's the word when you you bring a word, not liberate the word? Reclaiming it. Reclaim it, that's the word. Reclaiming it into the language. And, you know, I was feeling, you know, as somebody who was gay and who was, you, you had that word thrown at me so often in my life, who are you to reclaim this word? And also to describe yourself in a way which, you know, when people talk about their truths, for example, uh, where they use this descriptor, which is absolutely 100% a lie. Um, so, I, you know, I wrote this piece for The Telegraph about it because I do feel, yeah, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to always be controversial about things but I do feel that if you have a voice in the world when something is important to you you should use that voice okay no there's a bit to break down there so queer is it's a kind of a traumatic word for you yeah yeah and and it would be for uh, not just for me for it would be for whole generations of of gay people okay but then I suppose in a way didn't it become more it became culturally appropriated to to like for gay culture and broader kind of transgressive culture became known as queer culture and stuff and i suppose the word evolves doesn't it and we don't want to become cranky old men either like the young crowd coming up you know are changing the meanings of words and you know changing their, their ownership over it and all that kind of thing well nobody owns a word i think language is language and you know, to be told by people, the, the very people who would have used that word um, as an insult in the past, now telling me that I have to be called it because, yeah. again, they're deciding from their position, they're deciding this is what you are. You know, I mean, why do other people get the right to do that? I don't think they do. And especially I don't think that, um, I, I don't think heterosexual people have the right to reclaim any word in that way. Any more than white people would have the re- right to reclaim any word that has been historically used to demean or insult people of colour. And if a white person was to suggest they were doing that, they would be rightly yeah. condemned for it. So I, I, don't, I don't buy it. 
I, what I said in the Telegraph article was that if you are a gay man or a lesbian and you choose to use that word to describe yourself, good luck to you. No problem with that. But if you're a 25-year-old who is exclusively heterosexual, do not use that word and do not call me that word because I'll tell you if you do, you won't call me it twice. Okay. You see... I, I don't know that he uses the word queer, but I can't help thinking of Harry Styles, like who has, mm. I suppose, kind of uh, has been fashion wise and in his whole aesthetic and everything has been sending off a kind of a gender fluid or maybe a classic kind of queer vibe. And then, you know, he said stuff like, well, defining your sexuality is outdated and all that. And I guess, you know, there's this thinking now that we're all on spectrums and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like, is that not a more progressive way to look at things? Sure, it would be a very progressive way to look at things if Harry Styles had ever dated a man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. he hasn't. Yeah. So, okay. you know, to me, it's a very um, clever, commercial um, way of promoting a career. But, you know, when uh, I'll take that back when um, if and when Harry takes me on a date. How okay. about that? Okay. Yeah, there's a, a guy here. I'm I'm an almost 60 gay man uh, in a 25-year relationship. I like the word queer as a descriptor of who I am. I like the reclamation of derogatory adjectives. So. Okay, but as I said, you know, if you are a gay person and you want to use that word, yeah. great, good luck to you. That is your right. But it's not someone else's right. Yeah. The great thing about you is that you don't need to do any of this kind of stuff, right? And a lot of writers now, I think, uh, very much shy away from kind of causing any offence to anyone or saying anything that anyone might disagree with. But you would kind of... I think it's a more old-fashioned view of the job of the writer, is it? Is to kind of uh, maybe take on the consensus sometimes? It's not something that I particularly want to do a lot of the time. In, in an ideal world, all I would do is talk about books and write books. But as I mentioned earlier, if, if you have the good fortune to actually have some kind of voice in the world and you feel passionate about something, then I think you need to use that correctly. So when, you know, with that subject we were talking about, you know, I just sat down and I just felt I wanted to write something about this. And I offered it to, you know, I, I thought, who would be most likely to take this piece? And I thought the Telegraph would be honest. <laughs> yeah. um, I thought it was a bit more likely. A right Tory rag. I'll well, go to indeed. Them. Well, you know, um, but they also publish people like... I'm not saying Murray that. I'm and Hadley Freeman. And, yeah. you know, whereas, you know, if I offered it to The Guardian, you know, I would have Owen Jones probably taking out a hit on me. Yeah. So, okay. I, I, you know, people don't have to agree with me or disagree with me, but I, I, choose, to, I choose to use my voice in a way that I, that I think is, is sensible. And um, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, now... Um, there's lots of nice text about you here. There, there, there is somebody pointing out, and and I think, and you, and you know what I'm going to say, right? Is that if you're going to be sensitive about how others define you and language and all that, mm -hmm. can you then understand, say, when trans people, some of them, took exception to you writing a book about a, a trans teen and and the, the your pronouns in it, and I think your decentering of the trans character in it and all that? Are, they're entitled to their truth on that one as well are they oh everybody's entitled to their their own opinions on these things what well, the only thing i ever said about that book was that um you can only have an opinion once you've read it and you know if yeah. you haven't read it you do not get uh, on any book you don't get the right to an opinion on it and i would simply just ignore someone's opinion if they haven't read it yeah and i think you your intentions certainly if motivation counts anymore your intentions and motivation going into that were good Oh, of course. I mean, for heaven's sakes, as if they would have been anything but. Yeah. And that's the mistake that um, a lot of people made. And a lot of people apologised to me after it. 
actually, about their attitudes to that time, which is, I don't know, four years ago or something, um, as if I would have gone in to write a, you know, something filled with hatred. It just wouldn't make sense. I think there is an element, no, though, as well, of like that people want people to stay in their lane and that they would say, well, that's not your story to tell. uh, Well, I mean, then all we have in the world is autobiography. Yeah. And, you know, only criminals can write crime books. Science fiction doesn't exist. And I don't even want to think about who'd be writing horror. And um, we can write anything we want to write. And it's, it's up to us to then write a good book, a bad book, or most of the time, to be fair, a middling book. Um, I have no interest in staying in my lane. I only want to stay outside my lane. Um, just because a book is about a trans, has a transgender character, why should they be the center of it? They're not more important than anybody else. Not in the slightest. You know, you can make them, if you want to make them the centre, great. If you don't, great. If you want to make them a criminal, great. You know, you write the book that you want to write. Nobody has the right to tell you differently. Um, and, and I won't be told as a writer um, what lane I am to stay in. I have no interest in anybody's views on that. I was thinking again about, I was talking to Margaret Atwood last week. We, we, had, um, we had her on, but I read again. Have you read Margaret Atwood's essay, Am I a Bad Feminist? Uh, no, I haven't. Go, away, go away and read it straight okay. after this. And if right. you just look it up, I think it was in one of the Canadian papers, but right. it come up straight away. Um, in times of extremes, she says, right, ideology becomes a religion. And then if you don't agree with people's views, you're a heretic or a traitor. She said fiction writers are particularly suspect in times of very high ideology because they write about human beings and people are morally ambiguous and the aim of ideology is to eliminate ambiguity. And she's right, isn't she? Like they, that, that like characters in books are not meant to be paragons of, of virtue are meant to be demonstrating how we live a good life or anything. No, just... not at all. They're actually, you know, because in real life, we are all extremely complicated people and we are all capable of moments of kindness, of decency and moments that we look back on and feel regret and shame over. And if you are going to write a novel, then you need to have authentic characters at the heart of that novel. And that means that they are not heroes and they are not villains. They are people like you and me and everybody else who is capable of all sorts of actions. Um, And and the the problem is now with the various ideologies that go around, uh, if you you write something which has a a critical character in it, a person who is doing a bad deed and is from a minority you will get accused of a prejudice for that. But it's, that's just nonsense. You know, everybody um, in books has to be interesting. Every character has to be interesting. You can't have just one group who are paragons of virtue and another group who are absolute monsters. It, it doesn't, that's not what literature is about. You, uh, you, now, we're into the territory then of probably the controversy around the boy with the striped pyjamas. Now, you've just, you wrote a very, very successful uh, sequel to it recently, but equally you think that the boy in the striped pyjamas wouldn't get published now. I think it would be very difficult to publish it now, yeah. and it would go through all sorts of editorial processes that would, um, you know, uh, if I had any hair, would make it all fall out. So I, I think it would be, a, I think... It's a very difficult time now in publishing, particularly in young people's publishing. And remember, Boy in the Striped Pajamas was originally published as a children's book Mm. for young people. So um, that's in a very, very dark space, uh, uh, that that publishing world. 
And no, stri- equally, no, you, di- you did end up, which I, I think is possibly the worst position anyone could end up in, in a kind of a, having a Twitter spat with the uh, Auschwitz Foundation. Like, there were people who, you know, have serious credibility on this issue, who had issues around the book mm-hmm. as a representation of the well, Holocaust. The two things I would say about that is, first, that is an urban myth. You know, everybody yeah, okay. says that to me, and it never actually happened. <laughs> okay, well, I beg your pardon then. No, yeah. but it never happened. What happened was that the Auschwitz Memorial tweeted saying that um, people studying the Holocaust should not um, use the boiler striped pajamas. Yeah. I did not write a textbook. I did not write a book for schools. I did not write a book for universities. And I did not write a nonfiction book. I never asked anybody to use it for mm. educational purposes. I wrote a fable written for children, which was a story. And I believe that children can tell the difference between the two. But people say to me regularly, you got into this spat with the Auschwitz Memorial. As God is my witness, that never happened. Okay. But it's one of those sticks that's used to beat me with and has been used to beat me with since the Jessica dramas because a group of people basically decided that I was the devil and they will say these things, but there isn't an iota of truth in it. Okay. Is that very hard, all that, still? No, no, it's, no it doesn't matter. You're, I mean, you're, it, you're over it. Yeah, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, I don't think about it at all anymore. I'm you know, sitting here talking yeah. to you. But and, like, I, and you know I wasn't using it as a tick to beat you. Really. No, 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 no not at all. No, and actually here. I appreciate yeah. the opportunity to actually yeah. say, yeah. when people say this sort of thing online, that they are actually just making it up because yeah. it never happened. You see, I do think this is a very important conversation to be having right now because we also have, look, which to a lot of people it's not going to matter one way or another, but this... The, the Roald Dahl thing, I think, yeah. was was a kind of a, maybe a bellwether for people of it. The, the, the reworking of Roald Dahl books to take out some stuff that was maybe we'll call it of its time, right? But this rise of sensitivity readers. So I, I gather that our new books now are being run past sensitivity readers before they're published, are they? Some are, depending okay. on the book, depending on the author. Um Certainly with newer authors, you know, on their first, second, third books, building their careers, um, their books will certainly be analysed and sent through sensitivity readers to make sure there is nothing in there that can possibly offend anybody. And, uh, you know, look, I'm not sure that's the kind of book I want to read. You know, I mean, I don't mind being offended, actually. I think it's kind of good to be offended sometimes and to be challenged and to have your opinions um, challenged in some way. I think writers who've been in the game a long time um, have the freedom to say, no, thank you. Um, I'm not going to go through that process. Uh, I'm, I, I go through an editorial process, you know, where my editor will uh, tell me, you know, what's working, what's not working, what's, what dialogue sounds real, what dialogue sounds stupid, you know. Yeah. But I won't have my books put through sensitivity readers um, and being to- be told uh, this could offend somebody. My American publisher, with all the broken places um, outside of my control, certainly sent it to a sensitivity reader and sent me a document of uh, responses to it. I didn't read it. Yeah, I have to say uh, the echo chamber, which is, you know, funny books generally aren't funny. Mm. The echo chamber is so funny, but like. There's no way any of that got past the sensitivity oh, because they're all yeah. such awful people yeah. saying and doing awful but things. But that was such a farce, yeah. that book. And it was so over the top yeah. that, that like, you couldn't take it seriously as trying to offend people. But um, and okay, people, so you know, you that was, I was really happy yeah, with that yeah. book. So. Uh, yeah, it was super. Um, listen, 
That's a really interesting conversation you know, that we don't often get to have, I think. But I think fundamentally, uh, your, your viewpoint is, look, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but let yeah. me have mine as well. And let's all, let's all talk and argue about these things. But, and but also, if I could just say that as well, that one thing we have to stop doing is demonizing everybody who people think have a different opinion to you. Yeah. Just because you do, it does not make you a devil in some way. Yeah. Okay, listen, loads of texts. Uh, the best book I ever read, Tell John, The Heart's Invisible Furies, powerful and must read for all. Um, John Boyne's a breath of fresh air. He stands up for what's right. Please tell John when he recently became aware of his books and I'm devouring them. I absolutely adore John Boyne. I've read all his books. Each has had such profound impact on me. My daughter is reading those books now. Through her, I am reliving the the joy and uh, lots more like that and then there are still um questions I about this. <laughs> no this is actually about the queer thing right on, so yeah, yeah. Just, i think this would be a useful one. we just do one okay? yeah, is he saying it's okay for lgbtq people to use the word queer but not anyone else is it not the context and how words are used um i i am saying that it's okay for lgbt people to to use it yes but I'm, I'm also saying that, no, I don't think other people should because, because it has just this historical negative connotation. Um, so we can use it about ourselves, but I, don't, I, I just don't think other people should use it. And also, if, if I, for example, say I find that word offensive and traumatic, then somebody should re respect my feelings on that. OK. All right. Uh, John Boyne, thank you very much. Thank we look forward to the next book. Text 51551. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1.